Welcome to another episode of Capturing COVID, a podcast that takes experiences and turns them into memories. I'm sure everyone can think of ways that COVID has impacted you, whether it was working from home for the first time or you're still working from home, uh, treating some positive COVID-19 patients on the front lines as a medical professional, or even, like our guest today, was making some very important critical decisions for helping children return to school. We really wanted to create this podcast to document these stories, especially around the decision-making that a lot of these amazing experts took into account and made, and really the history of COVID-19 from various perspectives. We are passionate about giving our audience a resource to listen, relate, and reminisce on a time in history that the world will never forget, the COVID-19 pandemic. So tune in for this and other 60-minute episodes with various special guests and inspiring stories with me, Jason Newland, a pediatric infectious diseases physician at Washington University, and the Schnook Family Endowed Chair of Pediatric Infectious Diseases at St. Louis Children's Hospital. So I'm so, 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 I'm going to go four so's today, excited about the guest on the podcast, Dr. Rachel Orschelin, who I often call RCO for her initials. I just love doing that. Dr. Orschelin, or Rachel, did her undergrad at the University of Missouri, grew up in Jeff City, but I always get this wrong. Moberly. We call it the magic city. The magic city of Moberly, Missouri, then did her medical degree at University of Missouri-Columbia, then came over to St. Louis Children's Hospital to do her residency, saw the light and the beauty of the specially known as pediatric infectious diseases, and stayed here to do that fellowship, and then has been a faculty member since what year? 2005. I'm a lifer. She's a 2005 faculty member, and here's what everyone has to know about Rachel. You see, you hear about Washington University and all this research and all this stuff that we do. Well, the only reason that we can all do a lot of this research, including me, is because we have people like Rachel, who is an amazing clinician and does all this stuff that actually takes care of the patients and makes us successful. So, Rachel, first off, thank you for that. Well, thank you for having me today, Jason. Yes. All right. So here's the thing. So, Rachel, I joined the faculty at Washington University on January of 2016. And, Rachel, I don't know if you remember this, but you were one of the first people to email me and welcome me to the division before I joined and ask me questions about antibiotic stewardship. So I always will remember that and appreciate you for just making me feel like a part of the group from day one. So we're obviously here to talk about COVID. And prior to the pandemic, Rachel and I talked and saw each other at our conferences and were clinicians together and, and you know shared about how to be a pediatric infectious disease doctor. Then we became a lot closer during the pandemic. I can say, I think honestly, we probably talked two, three, four times a day for a number of months. Is that fair? That's absolutely true. So I think it's very fitting that Rachel is one of the very first guests we're having on. I'm going to go to the first question. Can you just tell me in your own words and what you were feeling March of 2020, start of the pandemic, not only for you, but for your thoughts about work, for your family, if you really want to tell us a little about your family? Well, I was thinking back about this uh, in preparation for today. And one of the things that comes to mind from the beginning of the pandemic is, you know, we both do media appearances. We get asked periodically to comment about infectious diseases in the news. And so I was asked to do a media appearance about this new virus in China. And I remember that, you know, I'm in the studio and they ask me, do you think we should panic? And I was like, of course not. We shouldn't panic. It's there, you know. What month? In probably February. February of 20. February of 2020. And so I was like, of course not. I really did not see this as something that was going to be important or impactful. And I, I mean, I still stand by the, no, I don't think you should panic, but I did not see the tsunami that was coming. And so 
even following uh, that, as things started to increase in intensity, uh, I was planning a spring break vacation with my children and family to fly to California. And, you know, as we were getting closer to that, and people would say, you know, ask about spring break, and I'd say, yeah, we're, we're going on a trip. You know, as you get closer and closer, you're starting to think, should we do this? And there's more and more concern and skepticism, but we were in the airport preparing to fly out Boarding group A was boarding. And when we heard that they really shut down the place where we were preparing to visit and in that moment of, wow, things are shutting down. Uh, I was almost on a plane. <laughs> and that was when it's like, okay, this thing is happening. And I realized that spring break, you know, I said to my kids, bring all your stuff home. Wow, so middle of March in an airport about to board the plane, you pull the plug. Boarding group B and boarding group A is boarding and we get a call from a family member saying they just shut down the mountain where we were going to ski. And, you know, at that time, you actually, you know, if we had gone just to visit our family who was in the region where we were going, I couldn't leave the airport if I had gone there because you weren't allowed to go into that city because of the concern for COVID. You would have to be put on quarantine for several weeks upon returning. And so, you know, we pulled the plug on the trip. But that was the moment, you know, like up until then, it's like, ah, you know, this is happening. I'm seeing it happen, but I'm not really that concerned. And at that moment, I realized, wow, you know, and I realized the impact it was going to have. It's interesting for me to reflect on that. I actually made it to part of my spring break. So I was driving my two daughters. We drove to Florida. I'm sitting in Florida at the beach watching this start to happen. And then we started getting these announcements about if you're in certain places, you're going to get quarantined. I was running into, we didn't eat at any restaurants. I was grabbing food at grocery stores and back. And then I was like, uh, girls, we got to go back. Because I'm on service next week, and I can't be quarantined. It's crazy. Oh, my goodness, Rachel, I forgot. Okay, so what did you think as a pediatric infectious disease doctor at this time, what that was going to mean for you or for us? You know, Jason, I don't think I really knew. I mean, I, I really don't think I knew at that moment. You know, you're hearing about it. I think I am an optimist by nature, and so... I think I kept maintaining the idea in my mind that this was not going to, you know, expand, that we were going to be able to contain it. The quarantine was going to be effective. We weren't even wearing masks at this point. I think, you know, we had even skepticism about whether that would be helpful but or even necessary. And so I do not think I really saw that coming. And I don't remember when this exactly happened. Maybe you will remember, I think, professionally, when I started to really think about the impact of this it was when we got a survey about what we would be able to do on the adult side of the hospital. So I think we, you know, from the beginning had this impression that children were not as significantly impacted by this viral infection. I think that felt like a huge relief and a huge blessing. But we started to get asked about, would you be able to do this sort of thing? Would you be able to do that sort of procedure? Things that as an infectious disease physician, I hadn't done in many, many years. And I think that was really stark to me, like, wow, I may be put into this position. Certainly I can do many things with supervision, but you know, the idea that we were really going to have to expand our, our work outside of our profession, I think was pretty scary. Yeah, and I think the listeners should know that children's hospitals were not having these admission numbers that the adult hospitals were having. And so in our healthcare system, they started 
looking at different floors. So medical floors that would usually have pediatric patients because also our hospital became almost very quiet. Think of it as a pop-off valve so we can put a bunch of patients on one of the floors. I mean, I think that's really true. It's interesting as much as there was a surge in the adult hospitals, we actually, things got very quiet because they shut down many procedures that didn't immediately need to be performed. Um, Many people were scared to come to the hospital. And so there was really a reduction in our patient volume. But on the adult side, obviously, that was not the same story. Did you ever do any time in the COVID unit? I did not do any time directly in the COVID unit. Obviously, we saw patients in consultation, but I I didn't see patients there when, I mean, there was a guard at the door and, you know, things were sort of very restricted in terms of movement in and out of that um, place. And so, no, I didn't serve any time. Did you? I did. I did. The first shift I did in there was before we were wearing masks. And everybody had like, when you went into a room, it, you had like two people would help you with your gown and your your mask and your, your eye protection. It was wild. It was really, really wild at the time. And that, yeah, it, and we had one COVID patient in there at the time. And then when I did my second shift, there was a couple of adults in there. That was at this time in April. So how did your kids take the fact that they were going to be home? You know, I think they actually took it pretty well. They did not mind the idea of doing the virtual schooling. You know, I think it was a little hard to keep them up to speed. I think there was a little less attention to school (laughs) in the time where it became virtual. So I think that was hard for us as a parents. And certainly there was less opportunity for them to interact with their friends. We actually had resisted having video gaming system in our house for a long time, but we had gotten one, I think the Christmas before. And I was honestly so thankful that our kids could interact with other people that way during that time period. Um, So they had some opportunities online to be able to interact with friends, but it was tough. So crazy at the beginning. I I don't know about you, but I remember being home for like two months, except if I was on service. Right, exactly. Was that like for you too? Yeah, I mean, I, I do a lot of clinical time, so I was obviously coming in for those sorts of things. But in the times where I wasn't working, it was working from home. And, you know, fortunately, I was able to get an office set up to be able to do those things. So just to explain to those who aren't in our setting, when I say on service means I was in the hospital as the pediatric ID doctor seeing the patients they wanted to see. Rachel does a lot of clinical time, whether it's going to our outpatient clinic um, and taking care of patients that are seen like as a, you know, they're coming in, they have a fever problem or those problems and sees them and does a lot more clinical time than I do. So you probably were here more than I was in those first couple months. Okay, so one of the main reasons I wanna bring you on to talk about was all the, the work to try to have children in school. When did you think that was where you were gonna be involved? How did it come about that you became, really Rachel, the major leader in getting kids back to school? Not only, I would say, in St. Louis, but the whole state of Missouri. Well, you know, these things happen organically. It's not like I set out to get involved in this manner, but I had an interest in this based on my own personal experience of having kids. And I became interested in what was happening in other places in the world. And you could see there were places where people were successfully sending kids to school. And so that was interesting to me. And I have a brother-in-law who was a school superintendent. So we started talking about this issue and, and started thinking about, well, how are we gonna plan for the future? And so it really started in those personal conversations. And then we got engaged with a group through one of our colleagues on the adult side who was helping businesses return to operation. And he had been engaged then with the schools and we were able through our conversations with him to get involved with the group 
of educational leaders who were planning the return to in-person learning. Yeah, so this group in the St. Louis region is called Education Plus. They're kind of like a cooperative where the schools work together and the superintendents work together. And it's an organization that's been around for many, many years. And they kind of are leaders for these for the superintendents. And so there was a lot of superintendents on these calls as well as the health department. Yes, absolutely. It was the health department. It was medical professionals and school leaders that were getting together to talk about strategies for in-person learning. When could we do this? How could we do this? Can we do this? <laughs> what month is this where you really start meeting? Was it July of 2020? Was it more the end? Where, do you remember exactly? I really do feel like it was before then because I think we were preparing. I don't know if it started in the summer or even before the school year was out that we started thinking about, is this going to be possible to return to in-person learning? We were pretty optimistic that it would be possible to return to in-person learning. So May of 2020, why did you think it was possible to do it, to have in-person school when pretty much most people are like, no way in heck is this going to work? <laughs> Fortunately, there were other places in the world that were putting out their experience of in-person learning. And so, you know, especially over the summer, you know, places that were off cycle for us in terms of in-person learning were saying, yeah, we're able to do this. We have kids in this capacity. This is what we're seeing in terms of any infections that are occurring when we have a positive student or teacher in the environment. And the, the situation looked really favorable. And I think I was also paying attention to what the literature was in terms of impact on children of this viral infection and seeing that it was relatively low on children. Now, obviously we know children can spread things to adults. And so we had to be mindful of not letting this infection spread rampantly. But from what we could tell from the literature that was out there, it was safe to do it. Schools could operate and not have widespread disease or infection related to COVID-19. In order to operate, they're going to have to operate differently, though. Right. And I think there was some skepticism on the part of some people that schools would do this. But once you dig in and get to know the school leaders and you see how they operate, you realize how incredibly vigilant they are about anything related to education, children, and health. I mean, it became clear, right? Like they wore masks and they, they kept many people out that were sick. And, you know, they used some distance and they did stuff outside. You just weren't seeing it, right? We just weren't seeing kids have it. Right, exactly. I, I mean, and that's what the experience was from other places in the world that we could kind of extrapolate, you know, hey, here's the things we could do. Masks, distancing, limiting people coming into the environment, keeping our cohorts relatively small so you're not having lots of mixing of different populations within the school to the extent that was possible, keeping windows open on buses, improving ventilation. I think we, I didn't really come around to the idea that that was so important to a little bit later, but you know, that was one of the recommendations as well. One of the big things was screening and keeping sick people out. <laughs> yes, which was kind of challenging, right? Like. Talk about you helped create this algorithm for school nurses on who to keep out and who to get tests and stuff. Can you want to talk about this? And an algorithm for people is basically for a nurse could follow like, oh, if they have these symptoms or out or they get tested and these things. You want to talk about how that came about? <laughs> well, that's interesting because, Jason, as you can remember probably from the beginning, we didn't really know what symptoms would be the most important. You know, we're learning about this infection. So we knew it's a respiratory virus for many people. but there also seemed to be cases where people just had sore throat, people had vomiting and diarrhea, fatigue, headaches. And so as we were understanding the presentation of this infection, we had to cast a broad net of what would be considered a symptom that needed testing. And the other part that really impacted this was we didn't have tests. 
So, you know, in a situation where we have widespread tests, okay, easy, have any symptoms, be tested. But there was a severe lack of access to testing. And we also had to think about equity and access and justice. And can we make an algorithm that everybody can access that has the elements that people can be tested if we say they need to be tested? So I think those were the things that really made this difficult. Yeah, I'll say I think one of the things that I just loved watching you do was was to kind of reach out and really partner with folks. I think number one, you were on the governor's task force and met I think every Saturday for a while. Is that, that yeah, right? That's correct. And then we have some colleagues across the way in Kansas City, we call the gins, Dr. Jen Goldman and Dr. Jen Schuster. Yes. Right? Like, don't you want to talk about those guys and how they came a part of this? Absolutely. You know, you're mentioning that. I think that was one of the ways we navigated this. We did not know exactly how to proceed going forward. We could look at what was happening in other places. We could use our expertise as infectious disease physicians, but this was a new situation. And so one of the most valuable things we had was our colleagues to get together, to talk about what we were experiencing, and to really say, is this a rational approach? We really used our colleagues across the state and your national group of infectious disease physicians, bringing that whole group together to talk about, hey, this is what we're thinking. What are you guys seeing? How do you think this will work to get feedback in real time from across the country? Um, so we had our state group of infectious diseases that we would text, meet, talk, you know, pass ideas back and forth, but then the whole national group that we could say, here's what we've come up with. What are you guys doing? How do you think this will work? You know, one of the interesting things I remember from that conversation is, you know, there was this whole idea of, should we be taking people's body temperatures? And there was some skepticism about that. And the people in Florida are like, you know, when we do this, the kids are hot and we end up <laughs> yes. having all these kids that are positive. And then we have to put them in a room and we're really trying to keep kids from being, you know, all together in one place. And so you didn't realize until you started to try something, whether it was going to work or whether it was not going to be helpful at all. Our other episodes, it still comes back to this notion, right? That we were really blessed that we had good friends. Yes. And colleagues that we could just call up and work together. What did you think about the fact that in St. Louis, we had the pandemic task force for the city and that the health systems worked together? I, that was amazing. I mean, that really was an amazing situation where the health systems, they're competitors by nature. I mean, obviously I'm, it's not in my pay grade to really be that interested in the competition, but they are competing for a patient population. To have them all come together to work on issues related to caring for patients, to doing, you know, having a standard approach to visitors or whether we're doing elective surgeries. And then really that pandemic task force also brought together all the systems as it related to schools and how they could help with certain aspects like testing or vaccination. I mean, that has been a truly remarkable part of this pandemic. Yeah, I want I just wanna make sure if you haven't listened to the previous episode, St. Louis, the major healthcare systems, BJC Healthcare, St. Louis Children's Hospital where Rachel and I work, that's what their health system, SSM, which, is another large healthcare system that has another children's hospital in it called Cardinal Glennon affiliated with St. Louis University. And then Mercy, which is again, a large healthcare system that is multi-state, Arkansas, Oklahoma. All this said, look, we gotta work together. And it, I'm not sure many other cities had it, but we, and I, I want people to talk about it because it really was important, right? It was so important even with the school discussion because if we were having trouble, we could actually t elevate it to this task force to help us maybe navigate. Did you feel the same in regards to them and their aid for us? 
Absolutely. And the communication to the community, I think that was critical as well, because the health systems were speaking through Dr. Alex Garza or Dr. Clay Dunnigan with one voice to the community as it related to messaging regarding schools or children or other things, the mitigation strategies that we needed people to undertake. That it was one voice speaking to the community, providing information, I think was really critical. Yeah. Okay, so let's now talk about a couple stories. I remember vividly being on a number of these Education Plus meetings. I felt like, weren't they like on Thursdays at? Yes, Thursday morning. Nine o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning. They lasted a good hour, hour and a half. Number of superintendents, very brilliant people working so, so hard to figure out how were we going to bring these kids who hadn't been in school from March until May, no school in our area, really, in our our state, the state of Missouri, had been in school. And we're now all in July going, okay, we're going to go back to school. Rachel, you can tell me, but I was like, we're going back to school. We're going to have them back in person. We're going to have a method to do in person in July of 2020. Did you have the same feeling at that time? Absolutely. I think we saw what could happen other places in terms to return to in-person learning. We knew at this point that we had enough information about the impact on children. And we also knew as pediatricians that Children need to go to school. What's going to happen if children don't go to school? And I think the other important point is what happens to parents and healthcare systems if children don't go to school? We know that the lack of availability of childcare through school has a major impact on the workforce. And so I think for a variety of reasons, we felt it was safe and also necessary for kids to return to school. Now, teachers were, were scared. A lot of people were scared. And I remember vividly trying to talk to some and also being told, Jason, you're not you're being dismissive of their feelings. Did you ever get any of those kind of comments back to you that our push for back to school is a little dismissive of those who were scared? You know, I, I, I could hear the fear in some of the conversations we had. We did a number of presentations to different groups, including teacher groups. And I, I remember at one point in time, you know, a teacher asked me, should she update her life insurance situation? And, you know, I think that was meant to express a real fear about health and safety. And so I think people, you know, this was an unknown situation. Obviously, people come from a lot of different backgrounds and there was a real fear about, yeah. you know, infection. Yeah, it was that that was some of the I would say for me, that was some of the hardest was um, was hearing that and that fear and and trying to understand and empathize because right, it was so unknown. Right. Okay, so July of 2020, we get word that the recommendation was going to be not to be in-person school because of seeing some increasing cases in July of 2020 in the St. Louis region. How did you feel when that was stated? That was one of the toughest moments, I think, of this whole pandemic for me. I knew my own children would be going back to in-person school. I worked closely, particularly with my son's school. I knew we were going back in person. And, you know, seeing the fact that many students in other school systems weren't going to go be going back. It was around the time there was a an athletic company that had a, a big commercial that was we're all in this together was the theme. And I remember seeing that and actually crying and thinking we're not in this together. There there are going to be kids that are left behind. And that was a really sad moment for me, thinking of the impact of loss of in-person learning. Part of the sadness was driven from what? Just how much you worked or how hard you worked? It was just knowing the impact that was going to echo forward on those children and families. We saw it and there was a gap related to educational progress for many students um, who did not receive in-person learning. And I think as a pediatrician, you know um, what happens when kids don't go to school, especially if they, you know, young children can't meaningfully learn from online education without someone directly there assisting them. So I think I knew that that was what was coming forward. 
I didn't feel like it needed to happen to be out of school. So I think I was just worried about what was going to happen to those students. Yeah, and, and for people to know, there's actually and we'll, there's actually a federally mandated assessment of, of educational achievement called the nation's report card. And if you look at that specifically, there's there was significant drop in educational attainment. Actually goes back to when I graduated from high school, the levels of, I think, math achievement is at the level of 1992. Sorry, I'm younger than you there, Dr. Orson. And, and those people most impacted by this losing educational achievement were people of color and people in poverty, people with intellectual and developmental disability. So these sorts of lack of that education educational ability was is being shown now and in, in that so and I you know that was that was really hard to be clear the nation's report card does not attribute this decline in educational achievement due to a lack of in-person instruction but others other researchers have suggested this might be the case okay so this happens in July we have at least in the St. Louis public school systems there's many schools that are out but they start trying to work to get back and some schools start getting back kind of you know September October in person uh, and now I want to kind of talk about this these terms that we all became so familiar with during the pandemic and we'll walk through these terms isolation and quarantine Right. So that became like the buzzwords. Now we all focus on quarantine, whether, and so I'm going to talk about them and then I'm going to ask you about some quarantine questions, Dr. Orson, because I know you're excited about this. Okay. So if someone has COVID-19, we tell them you have to isolate. And it became clear early on that if you had COVID-19, for most people, you were infectious for about 10 days. And so we said, hey, if you have COVID-19 from the start of your symptoms through 10 days, you need to just be away from people. You need to go in your room, close the door, be around nobody. And that worked. That seems to work if you know do that. I, I had to isolate during my COVID time in June of 2022. We'll tell that story in a different podcast in the future. So that's isolation, right? I have COVID, I get isolated. Now, if you're somebody exposed, right? So that means if Dr. Orschlin, RCO and I, you know, decided that we were going to have dinner with our families. And I had COVID-19 two days before when we had dinner, she was exposed. And we did it for more than 15 minutes and we were at the dinner table and we were within six feet. So now back in July, August, September, October, November, many in 2020, that meant Rachel, you would have to quarantine, right? Stay away from people for 14 days. This was problematic for schools, right? So can you explain why this became so problematic for schools? Well, you know, if you look at this happening in a school setting, what really happened was that we had students being put out of school for these repeated stretches of time when one single student in the classroom would test positive. And so it became hugely disruptive. Now, it also impacted teachers in the workforce. And so this repeated situation of needing students to be out of school when there had been an exposure when they were asymptomatic. And we did learn that there was asymptomatic spread of infection. And so we had to be somewhat mindful of that, but it was having a huge impact on the ability to deliver in-person learning by having repeated quarantines. And it's important to note, right? School in October of 2020 or November of 2020 was not like school 
in November 2019, right? These kids were actually a little bit apart from each other. They were all wearing masks. There wasn't much symptoms, right? There might have been some sniffles, but there was much less than before. And so if you had somebody within six feet and they were in mask and someone was positive, everybody around them would go out. And then some schools would just say, okay, the whole class needs to go home for 14 days. Absolutely. So there was the situation where they just, there was a single positive, they took out the whole class. And you're right. This is despite the fact that we're having small cohorts. Students are distanced. Students are masked. We're not allowing symptomatic students in the classroom. And, and despite all that and emerging evidence that we're not seeing spread in the school environment, there was a lot of effort to quarantine, which just was really disruptive to schools. And I think that's the, the other piece I'd say is that we were learning from these superintendents and others and even across the, the places that were going back to school is that just didn't seem like people were like the kids next to them weren't getting it. And if they did get it, you were, they a lot of times it wasn't in school. It was them hanging out afterwards or they were driving in the car, like the teenagers, because that's who was getting it the most during this fall of 2020. Like, yeah, me and my buddy, we drove to the school and together and that's where I got it. Like, yeah, no kidding. So Rachel, you actually, and I, I'm gonna give you credit because you didn't get enough credit for this. You actually said this in July of 2020. You had this drawing. She had this drawing of kids in the classroom with masks and says, look, if they're in masks and they're sitting next to each other and one of them is positive, why do we need to take the kid out that's next to them that doesn't have any symptoms? Let's leave them in. Let's just have them where they're washed, but they can stay in school. Isn't that right? <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting to think back on it because I think I was a little naive in my own ability to impact a public health decision. But, you know, based on the information we had, there had been some examples of people who were positive with masks. Who had lots of encounters with people and didn't spread it to other people. So we had this information that like the masks are really effective, you know, if you're doing these things. And so why are we going to take students out of school? So we had conversations with our health department. I was fortunate, like I said, to have access to the state government. I was talking with them about this idea, not really realizing in my own head that maybe I can't from the groundswell change public health policy, but I had this feeling that this was the right way to do it. And look, your feeling was also rooted in data, right? And I, I got excited when you said that because it triggered a story in my head, right? So people remember Memorial Day 2020 and Missouri is on the front of CNN for two reasons. Now, most people remember reason one, which was the pool party at the Lake of the Ozarks, right? They're like, look at this pool party at the Lakes of Ozarks in May of 2020. What people forget is about two lines down, there was an article about a great clips in Springfield, Missouri. And one of our good friends, Dr. Robin Trotman, and the amazing people in the Greene County Health Department, they basically had two hairstylists at a great clips cut over 130 people's hair People getting their haircut masks, they were in masks and nobody got it. Now, the two hairdressers got it because they were back in the break room having it. That was huge. It was huge. And that great clip is still famous to this day. People from CDC like, oh, I got to go see the great clip. It was one of the very first, I would say, strong evidence, though. People would say, oh, it's not randomized. Okay, because we were going to randomize at that time. And it really was important. So I think, yes, you were... You were making these great observations, making these great recommendations, but like you said, there was a lot bigger fish, wall, mountain to climb over, climb, to change overall public health recommendations with saying, well, maybe if you're next to somebody, even though you're masked, you should be okay, right? Right. We, we were so lucky to have colleagues putting their experience out there so that we could stand on that experience to make the recommendations. But like you said, it was a much bigger, uh, a much bigger fish to fry than we 
realized. And so I will say, or I will put the show notes of this great clips. It's a great MMWR paper. I mean, it is fantastic. We, we will get that out there. Okay, so you are seeing this. You kind of, you kind of really, I'd say, came up with modified quarantine. I'm gonna give you credit for modified quarantine. Maybe though, if, even if you, I think you did. I'm gonna give you that. What do you think? Well, you know, I don't know if we thought of it like that at the time, but we're like, the mass should count. That's the way I thought of it in my mind. The mask should count. We're asking people to do it. It seems to be effective. Yeah. Tell the listeners, what was modified quarantine in November of 2020? What was what were we recommending as modified quarantine? We were recommending that if you were exposed to someone, but both people were masked appropriately, that we wouldn't require the exposed person to be out of school. Specifically, also, I think there was a caveat about, especially since the source patient typically wasn't symptomatic at the time of the exposure because we weren't letting symptomatic kids come to school. And so we made those caveats, but we said, hey, we should let these other kids stay in school. They're wearing a mask. And so that was the idea of the modified quarantine. Right. And there was some things around that and, and kept in. And then this actually gets adopted by CDC later on in the pandemic about this use, I think more in 21, like early 2021. But so you kind of come up with this and you actually stood next to the governor and did a press conference on October 20th, right? I was fortunate again to be a part of these conversations with physicians across the state to talk about lots of issues related to COVID-19. And one of them was my perspective on schools. And again, at the time, I was talking about this idea, not necessarily understanding that it wouldn't maybe primarily come from the government, it would be coming from the health department. But fortunately, I had an ally in the state government for advancing this idea for our state that we could use this modified quarantine. Now, maybe the way it was implemented didn't go over so well with all parties involved. I think many health departments maybe weren't satisfied with it when it came from the state government. So we can talk about how we move forward. What I remember, Rachel, was you did the press conference during the Educational Plus meeting time. You might not remember that. I definitely remember that. So it was during Education Plus because I remember vividly because we all stopped and says, oh, oh, it's the press conference. Here comes Rachel. And so we all watch. And I'm going to tell you right now, guys, she hit a grand slam. I mean, it was perfect. She stood up there, no notes, nothing. <laughs> and it was like, bam, bam, bam. Here's the point. Here's why we're doing it. And here's what we recommend because this is what was best for children and their education and families, and it's safe. You said it, you said it perfectly. Dude, it was it was amazing. Um, I don't know if you knew that, but we all watched it and we all, what happened next? Well, you know, it's interesting because you think this is a great thing. Everybody's gonna be happy about this. This is gonna allow children to attend school without interruptions. You know, families are gonna be happy, but you know, as we've learned throughout the pandemic, there are people that feel one way and people that feel another way. <laughs> and there was a fairly intense negative reaction, you know, on the part of, I think, teachers who were still fearful about the situation. And I think there was a lot of concern that this strategy would result in increased levels of infection in schools. Some of the health departments who weren't necessarily aware that this announcement was going to take place, maybe were caught off guard. So there was a, a lot of negative energy <laughs> immediately afterward. This is a tough question, so you don't have to answer. Did you feel it was political? I actually didn't feel it was political because, you know, one of my observations in working with the state government was the group that was convened. Now, I don't know anybody's political affiliation on the physician side, 
I certainly know what the political affiliation of the uh, state government was. Republican, if you're wondering or confused. There really wasn't, uh, I don't think people were selected to be on the advisory board based on any sort of political affiliation. People didn't temper their recommendations based on what one political party or another might recommend. And I felt like, you know, the state government was open to these suggestions. And I, because it was an idea I felt passionately about, I didn't feel like they were using that passion inappropriately. I felt they were responding to what we thought was the best evidence for moving forward for kids in schools. This is why I love you to death, because that's how, that's you. Cause you're like, oh, I didn't think it was political. Dude, I thought it was too, I was thought it was completely political. I was so mad. I was like, why are you taking her out? She's giving you great advice. It has nothing to do with the fact it's Republican and we live in this democratic county. And But you are right. I think I was too much on the side of it was political. I was mad. I was flat out, I was furious because I think they told told you, you couldn't, you weren't allowed to be on media or anything, right? And that happened? You know, I don't remember exactly. I feel like I, I don't remember those exact details. Yeah, so you're much better than me because I'm like, oh. I have a selectively positive memory, Jason. So, you know, I think obviously there was some concern from the health systems about the impact of this, but I, I really did have the support of that going in. And I feel like I had the continued support even afterward. You know, obviously people have to, when there's a negative reaction from the community, um, the leadership has to assess that. But I never felt like I wasn't supported moving forward. You know, obviously there's advice on how to proceed in one way or another, but I never felt like there was any second guessing of what we wanted to do going forward. There was just maybe closer attention to it, <laughs> asking for some maybe additional explanations or status updates. <laughs> But I didn't ever feel like that we got sequestered or weren't allowed to continue the good work, which we felt was necessary when we were able to explain why we were doing it. Okay, so you do this, right? You get up there, you talk this, you say this is what we should do, and then there's the backlash. It was backlash. I mean, it was pretty, it was intense backlash. And I think you you describe it well and you describe it. For the listeners, this is how awesome she is. She describes it in a way that she took it and moved it forward. And, and what did you do next? So, you know, I mean, that was the amazing thing. You know, we decided, you know, what we saw happen was I was thinking that all these school districts would adopt this policy that it was like a no-brainer, like it's going to be easier for them. And I think there was a reluctance on many, the part of many school districts to adopt this strategy because, you know, there was concern some health departments, which really had some jurisdiction over the schools, weren't comfortable with the plan. It wasn't endorsed by the CDC. And so there wasn't this, you know, groundswell of people adopting this policy. And so what we decided was, well, we have to find a way to show that this works. This is really effective. We have this data from overseas, other places, um, but we have to find a way to show that this works. And so what we were able to do or what we thought about or conceived of was we have to find a way to study this. We have to get in contact with the CDC. And again, we were really fortunate to have a connection with the state health department, with the state government that were really supportive of trying to advance this idea of inviting the CDC to come and look at our schools that were operating with this strategy and do the really due diligence of doing the PCR testing in the schools or doing strategies to really demonstrate it's safe and effective. And that's where Dr. Newland 
comes into the story. Yeah, no, but hold on. Now, let's be clear, right? October 20th is the press conference. When did you put together, you and Nadim, your husband, who's also a physician, put together the original kind of proposal, research proposal? Because you had this proposal, right? You and Nadim put this proposal together. When when was that about? Do you remember? Jason, and we should say that I'm not a researcher. I know you're going to say you're not a researcher, but the fact of the matter is you and Nadim put this together. Yeah, so we just kind of thought, how could we answer this question for people? How could we show that this is a safe and effective thing to do? So we try to outline a procedure. What would we do? How would we demonstrate this? And I don't even remember all the elements of it. I don't either. I just remember getting it and reviewing it. You, Nadim, and I started working on it. But it was in response to to this press conference and and what happened next, right? Wasn't it? Was it in response to that? It was absolutely in response to that. And it was sort of then we said, well, can we get the CDC on board? Basically, I think I was I, I actually, again, not really understand the communication channels, but like talking with our state health director, can we get the CDC? Can we invite them to study places that are doing this? And can we show that it's effective? Can we have some funding to do Because this is not something that can be done with no money. This is where the story to me is amazing. Well, the whole story is amazing. This is why you had to tell, we have to tell this. So, so Rachel's like, look, I'm not, you're not going to knock me down. I have other choice words that I use for her, but I'm not going to use them on the podcast. And she's like, look, we're going to do something about it. I've watched this. She said, Hey, will you, will you help Jason? You're the research. I'm like, okay, well, all right, you've done all this hard work. The state goes, yeah, we'll give you money. We'll give you about a million bucks to do it. I'm like, what? I am in the position where we had just gotten a big proposal for doing saliva-based testing in some schools in, in the special school district, and we'll have those folks on to talk about that project in, in future episodes. So we kind of had a little bit, but let's be clear, this is November, and all of a sudden, I don't know how we got in contact with CDC. Do you remember how we got in contact with CDC about this? You know, I could be lying, but I think it was actually really through our state health director at the time. And, and I think there was a relationship with Springfield because they had come and evaluated the Great Clips experience. And so, you know, there was this connection and, and they were willing to come and we have to invite them. You have to invite the CDC to your state. And so the invitation was made. The funding was promised. And they're like, okay, I think at this moment I panic, like, I can't do this. This is not, I'm a doctor that likes to see patients. <laughs> and and I was like, Jason, how are we going to do this? Will you do this? And we're like, I'll try, let's go. So I think we started meeting with the CDC early November. And I just remember going, okay, I'm not, it, there's no way this is happening, but we'll try. I'm like, I'm in my mind going, how are we going to do this? And the C CDC starts saying, we need to start doing this soon. There's a lot of stuff going about schools. We need to start doing this soon. Okay, I don't know, those out there that have done research and put in IRBs, so institutional review boards, so to get approval to do these things or, you know, get all the pieces in place. Man, it's months, mind you, November. All of a sudden, I want to say middle of November, CDC says, we're doing this and we're coming. What do you, you're coming? Yeah, we're going to do this, we're coming, and we're going to basically be in Springfield, Missouri, and we're going to do this also. And we're like, well, you got to do it in St. Louis too. Yeah, absolutely. And this protocol turns into essentially us getting the schools to tell us who was positive and all their contacts and then we went and out to the contacts and tested them i drove the city of st louis and the st louis region picking up tests from people for a while and and then the cdc's like yeah here we'll send you some great people out to help and so we got johanna salzer mary claire worrell um sarah tinker there's a whole crew of them that patrick dawson patrick dawson came out and they were here first of december and we did that project from december 8th to 18th unbelievable six weeks like it's seven weeks i didn't even realize i'm like oh my gosh 
seven weeks from when you decided we should do this, we were studying it in two different counties. And I guess to tie it back to modify quarantine, Springfield, Missouri, Southwest Missouri, Greene County, they were doing modified quarantine. So we were able to utilize that. And so we did a pilot that we did that pilot test, this pilot study for a week. And then we did another three months or two months, January and February and part of March of 21, just evaluating whether or not people in modified quarantine had it. And the reality was they didn't. The rates of those in modified or regular quarantine were not different in transmission in schools during that time. It was crazy, right? And it was all because of you. RCO, I'm not going to let you give it. I mean, we did it together. I could take off the other part, but you stood up and then you didn't let the negativity stop you. Thank you for that. Well, it's just amazing how many things came together. We had the support of our institution to do things. We were allowed to do things. I mean, this is not our job, you know, essentially. We had the saliva-based test. We had, um, you know, support of the state government to make these recommendations that some parts adopted that allowed us to study it. We had our state health department that uh, was helping us we had the financial support. We had the collaboration of the CDC that was willing to come in and evaluate this situation that wasn't their recommendation, but they were willing to come in and evaluate it to gain more information. We had the schools who were willing, the families, the kids, everybody came together to help. It was remarkable. And, and to those schools, actually, I, I can say this because it, it some of it's been published out, Pattonville School District in uh, was a major one. University City School District was a major one. Springfield, most school district. I mean, these people really, those these school, our school communities really just bought in and said, "We'll we'll help. We yeah. want to be on the front line. We want to we want to do this because this is the right thing for our communities, and we need to figure this out." It was remarkable to think how they just trusted us too, uh, which was I think hard at that time. You know, I have never been more humbled than by my work with the school leaders. I always thought, you know, pediatricians, we have a corner on the market of caring about kids. But I was humbled and amazed and uh, just so impressed with all the school leaders with whom we worked through this pandemic, their ability to not only conduct school, think about education, but then they had to take on this whole other element of health and safety, something about which you know, it's not their area of expertise, transmission of infectious diseases. And they were willing to find the partners they needed to conduct school in-person learning safely and successfully. Yeah, I can't imagine what they were thinking on day one. Tell me this, how many presentations do you think you gave to schools <laughs> during this time? Jason, at one point I was keeping a log of our presentations. Yeah, I had this log because I, I think I felt like we needed to be accountable to our division and our department for the type of work we were doing. And so, I mean, it was over 50 to parent groups, teacher groups, school leaders, community organizations who wanted to know how to navigate COVID and kids, many, many, you know, statewide to school um, districts across the state. You were involved in the ECHO to um, both school and practitioners across the state, organized by our good friends at University of Missouri. So many ways we were trying to get information out there, the information we had learned to, to try to help schools operate safely. The listeners should know that Rachel always puts together the best slides. All my COVID talks from probably eh, maybe as early as July of 20 were, hey, Rachel, do you have some slides? I need to talk about this. Can you hear me? And I I have so many presentations that are basically RCO, RCO, RCO. <laughs> and I have to make sure in my mind, these are courtesy of Rachel Orson. If you ever had a chance to listen to Rachel, you just always presented it with practicality, 
clarity. I think you were always humble and, and understanding and, and always said, look, we don't know, but this is what we believe and this is why we believe this is important. And you've eloquently stated that here, that this was best for our kids. And that was clear. And, and I will say, you know, your project, that the publication of the December time came out in March, that not only said that Modify Quarantine worked, but it also said that you didn't need to be six feet apart, that you could be three feet apart. Those projects spun off about five papers that we'll try to put, the, we'll put a lot of these papers in there. I have a unicorn named Spitz because of this project <laughs> that is in a lot of things. So I very much appreciate these efforts. You're bringing up another point that I forgot. One of the other reasons, and you just reminded me of it, that we needed the modified quarantine was because when students had to be six feet apart in order to avoid quarantine, kids couldn't come back to school. There wasn't enough space for it. So I think that's another critical point. The idea of modified quarantine made in-person learning, it wasn't just well, you won't be quarantined out of school if there's an exposure. It was, you can actually come back because we have enough room for you if we don't have to keep you six feet apart. Yeah, no, that's right. The, the six feet was really problematic for our schools. And hybrid learner learning, right, when they had some people online, some people in person, like that was a disaster. Right, a nightmare for teachers trying to teach to two different groups of populations. And now you have the students out of school and unless their family can be on lockdown at home with them, they're maybe in alternate care environments increasing their exposure. So we really saw a lot of negative impact of the hybrid status. Because you are, as you mentioned, an optimist, which is true. She's like, she's happy. The person you want to see in the hospital when you walk by is Rachel. I'm like, hey, yo, what's going on? I mean, it's the best. What's the best thing that has come out of the pandemic for you? I think all the collaborations. I mean, really, I have been so amazed by the different groups that have come together to tackle this problem. Government, health departments, school leaders, our institutions of healthcare, people in the community, our doctors, our people across our infectious disease specialists, getting to develop these collaborations, things that wouldn't have happened. We're, you know, I'm a clinician. I would have been in the hospital working. I love my job, but it's been amazing to see all those collaborations develop. There's so many silver linings of people. It was all about people. Like there's all these names of people that I could just go, man, thankfully. These are the people that sustain me, as you did. Okay, what was the most influential thing that someone has or had told you that helped you through the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, I was thinking about this, Dr. Newland, and I was thinking, was there something during the pandemic? And there was something, and I can't remember it. One of the superintendents said something, and I was always repeating it, and I can't remember what it was. But then I hearkened back to something my dad said to me when I was going to college. And what he said was, to those who have been given much, much will be expected. And that has always influenced me. You know, I feel very fortunate. Throughout this pandemic, you realize in so many situations, people were so much worse off. You know, either they weren't able to protect themselves, they didn't have the information, they didn't have the resources. And I felt like I had all these things and was so fortunate. It was my duty to help to spread information, to work with my colleagues, to help other people as best I could. That's so well said. It was kind of our time, right? Yeah, it was a hard time. It really was a hard time in many ways, a very busy time, a very hard time, but also, you know, like being in the trenches, you know, it's terrible, but then you really develop these close relationships with people, these collaborations that really sustain you. And that's, you know, I'm not like, let's go back and do it again. You know, I like my regular job, but it was pretty amazing. And I, you know, really value those relationships that developed. You stepped up, man. You were you were MVP. No, nah, I don't know about that, Dr. Newland, but I had a really great team of people that really 
face this thing head on. Ah, okay, so the parting three questions that we love to ask our guests. Where would you go if you could visit any place on earth and why? I would like to go to Vietnam. I've heard it's beautiful and I love Vietnamese food and I would love to have it in the real place. What was your childhood dream job? and why? Well, when I was asked this question when I was applying for residency, I said I wanted to be a rock star. I do like to sing. I'm just not that good. You are a rock star. What are you talking about? But I did always want to be a doctor. I mean, I wanted to be a doctor from as early as I can remember. And I feel like I'm living my dream. Jason, I'm living my dream. You know what? I, mean, I can't argue with you because you are an inspiration because that is true. You walk around like you absolutely love this job. And I agree with you. This is Greatest job you could do. So that's fantastic. Okay, last question. What book are you currently reading? You're going to laugh. No. My brother-in-law, the superintendent, holds an adult readathon over Christmas. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. That's cool. We report our pages just like we're in elementary school, and we have a goal and a stretch goal and, you know, total number of pages. And so I started reading James Rollins' The Sigma series. And the current book I'm on is called The Judas Strain, which the reason why you laugh is it, it's about an outbreak of a virulent infectious disease. <laughs> so I haven't steered far from my primary interest in my reading, so. Seems quite fitting, right? Seems quite fitting for the end of this podcast. All right, well, Dr. Ursuline, Rachel, thank you. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you for all that you have done during the pandemic, uh, all that you continue to do for uh, children and their family. Um, true inspiration, and I'm very blessed to be to call you my colleague and friend. Well, thanks so much for having me, Jason. We really couldn't have survived this pandemic without you. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Capturing COVID with Rachel Orslin. It was clear Rachel was uh, a true leader and such an important part of kids getting back to school. You know, Rachel's experience in advising schools, returning to in-person learning, and collaborating with the Missouri government, and really she came up with Modified Quarantine, was fascinating and relived experiences that frankly I wanted to put away, but I'm glad we were able to talk about. You know, Rachel truly was an unsung hero during the COVID-19 pandemic. And despite not being a researcher, and despite being really criticized heavily by people in the local community here in St. Louis, she persisted. She helped develop the research project with the CDC that, that frankly changed state and federal protocols. I mean, the reason why we went to three feet in March of 2021 in schools, meaning three feet apart, was because of the work that, that Rachel led. And she took a negative experience, you know, being criticized for coming up and suggesting modified quarantine, taking that negative experience and that criticism and turn it into positive. I think her persistence was exceptional. So Rachel, one, I can't thank you enough. Two, I, you know, I think what we've learned is that Teamwork and collaboration is essential. And, and Rachel demonstrated how you can collaborate just outside of even St. Louis. You know, one of her favorite and my favorite collaborators are two wonderful pediatric infectious diseases physicians at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Jen Jennifer Goldman and Jennifer Schuster, who we lovingly refer to as the Jens. So lastly, if you really want to know who Rachel is, I believe her quote she stated from her dad explains how thoughtful and generous a spirit she has. Her quote was, to those who have been given much, much will be expected. I am so thankful for all Rachel did to help kids return to in-person learning throughout the pandemic. And Rachel, thank you for sharing this experience with all of us. Okay, guys, we have more to unpack from the pandemic. 
And this episode is just one of many. So join us in our journey to listen, relate, and reminisce on shared and differing experiences. You definitely don't want to miss the next episode, which is going to be with one of the major leaders within the St. Louis region and really across the country, Dr. Hillary Babcock. Thank you again for listening to Capturing COVID. Huge thanks goes out to Gabby Smith and Sheridan Thomas for producing our show. Everyone should know this is Sheridan's last episode for a few months as she travels to Taiwan to do study abroad. Safe travels, Sheridan. Until next time, have a great week.